Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Morning. In the last service, we talked about just the importance of the local church, and uh, uh, it's a passion of a lot of us. I hope it's your passion, because what happens here in the local churches around the world is some of the most important stuff that goes on for eternity, right? It's really important. Uh, I would like to dispense one kind of uh, piece of business. I have this thing called essential trimmer. So, yeah, it's here a little bit. So I kind of shake some. My dad did. My brother does. So don't worry too much. Uh, but if I start to drool uncontrollably, dial 911. Help me out on that. So, But uh, on the serious side of things, it is a, I am nervous. If a person comes up here and they don't have some sort of holy awe of God and his word shouldn't be up here. Pull him off the stage quickly. And so I do have that, so there's a bit of nervousness. But we have the power of the indwelling spirit of God with us. Amen. And to that, I want to lead us in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Good morning, Lord Jesus. Uh, Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you for each person here. God, we would uh, ask that the Holy Spirit would fill us each in a fresh new way. Lord, that we would be controlled by him, yielded to him. I pray that this would be a lifestyle and not a moment. Uh, Lord, we pray for his ability to teach us, to convict us of areas where we're falling short. We pray for his comfort. We know there's people here that are distressed and downcast. May you bring comfort to them. And uh, we thank you for his role there. Lord, I also just pray... Uh, for our church family here. We know that there's young kids that have major medical issues, and we ask in Jesus' name uh, today that you would heal them of these things that are hurting these children. Lord, we pray for those that need jobs. We pray that you provide not just an employment place, but a place of ministry. Uh, Lord, we uh, ask you to uh, help all of us who are married, families, pray that marriages would grow in health, parents would have wisdom in how to parent, Uh, God, in that light, I would like to pray for the kids to our right and just pray for those kids and those teachers that are there and pray that these young boys and girls would become world-changing, radical followers of Jesus Christ and they would make decisions at an early age to follow you. And so, Lord, we just uh, ask all these things in your name. Amen. His name was Dr. Richard Kimball. He had a very flourishing medical practice in Chicago. And uh, he and his lovely wife went to a medical banquet in downtown Chicago. And on their return, they came to their high-rise luxury apartment. She went up to the apartment and went in, and he went to a convenience store to get some food. He came up there. When Kimball came into his apartment, he was shocked, horrified. His wife was laying down on the ground, blood everywhere. Obviously, something was wrong, and uh, at that moment, a one-armed guy who was actually the murderer hits him, knocks him down, 
kind of knocks him out and flees, escaped, no one to know that. The police come, the ambulances come, the police arrest Dr. Richard Kimball for murdering his wife. Goes to trial, he's convicted of murdering his wife. They put him on a train to take him to a prison where he would spend the rest of his life. Fate would have it on that train trip, there was a major wreck. The cars fly over the place. Richard Kimball sees a door open. He flees for his life, and he is on the run. And there is a certain lieutenant of the uh, federal marshals named Philip Gerard. He is passionate. He is zealous. He is determined to put Kimball behind bars. So this story goes on. There's cat and mouse games. Uh, Kimball flees one place, goes to another. Gerard is almost there. There's close calls. There's Dr. Kimball helps somebody uh, out there with his medical practice, and people think he's cool. And then he has to run again. And so this cat and mouse game goes on from 1963 to 1967 in a TV series called The Fugitive. I realize that a lot of you young people weren't even born then. So we, we, have, a, a, we have a fallback. There was a movie made called The Fugitive. Kimball was played by Harrison Ford. And, and Dr. The, uh, this is too funny. Uh, uh, Philip Gerard was played by Tommy Lee Jones, and he did such an excellent job driving his team and all that. So in the movie, there's cat and mouse and all this, and so Kimball is trying to find his murderer. So he's trying to find this one-armed guy. Gerard is find, trying to find Kimball. This is going all over the place. And uh, the climax is, is there's a, in a, a large hotel uh, laundry room. Kimball is there. Gerard is there. Another bad guy. And there's this cat and mouse game going in a laundry room. Gerard, or uh, Kimball, was passionate about getting vindication. I didn't kill my wife. I was falsely accused of killing my wife, and I've been running as a hunted criminal. I'm no criminal. In his heart, he screamed. Every day was defined. I've got to find my vindication. Well, so the bad guy is caught. The one-armed guy is caught, and there's another conspiracy. And then uh, at the end of the movie, there's kind of a neat scene where Kimball is in the police car with Gerard, and Gerard's Mr. Tough Guy. So he takes his key out, and he takes the handcuffs off of uh, Kimball. And then he takes this ice pack and puts it on his head because Kimball got hurt. And then uh, Kimball says to Gerard, hey, I, I didn't think he cared about me. And typical Tommy Lee Jones says, hey, I really don't. But Gerard uh, was right. They got the, the bad guy in jail. Kimball, Dr. Richard Kimball, after years of running, got his vindication. Vindication. Have you ever done something wrong or didn't do something wrong and were falsely accused? Maybe your spouse said you did something and you actually didn't do it. And so, I'm clean. I'm, I'm innocent on all this. And so we're going to talk about this thing, vindication. The first four words of our psalm today, Psalm 26, you might want to migrate there, is vindicate me, O Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord. And if you have an electronic device, you dare not wander into other things other than your Bible app because we have TV monitors. We will come and confiscate your device if you wander. I'm just kidding, just kidding. 
Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I was off, I was wondering what would make Kimball, or Kimball, David, who wrote this psalm, so passionate to plea vindicate me. What was it that he was kind of wanting vindication from? The text doesn't really say it, maybe alludes to it, but so I'm going to propose something that I think caused him to say this and to plea this, vindicate me, O Lord. So if we go back into 1 Samuel, a uh, little Bible history here, you know, we had the period of the judges. The last judge was Samuel, and Samuel was told, told by God to anoint King Saul. So Saul is the first king of the united monarchy of Israel. Well, Saul didn't do too well. He disobeyed God. And it wasn't a matter of time before God is going to replace King Saul with King David, just a young guy, probably a teenager at the time. And so David kind of makes his mark in 1 Samuel 17. It's the story of David and Goliath, and it's an amazing story. It's incredible. And so he comes up there. Mind you, he's probably less than 20 years old. He brings supplies up there, and he sees what's going on. Here's the army of Israel. And over there is the army of the Philistines. For 40 days, this guy named Goliath comes out and taunts the armies of the living God. I dare you to send somebody out. I'll tell him, winner take all. And so it was like a boxing match. Whoever wins, whoever killed the other person, the, the other side would surrender. So David says, hey, who's this guy? I'm not going to put up with this. He grabs a rock, runs out there. You know the story. The slingshot goes around him. The rock plants itself in his forehead. He falls down. David takes his head off. The Israelites go after the Philistines and conquer them. The women, in response, say this, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. From that moment on, the scripture says, Saul looked with suspicion on David. For 15 chapters, this thing develops. Saul's leadership goes in a downward spiral, just does everything wrong. He's so paranoid, he's so scared, so threatened by David's uh, leadership. Conversely, David's influence gets greater and greater. He grows in favor with God. He grows in favor with people. He does everything because God is, is there. And so this begins another cat and mouse. Saul, at the very beginning there, takes a spear, wants to kill David. David flees, and so he's on the run. And so we have an almost Gerard Kimball type of cat and mouse. David is going all over the place. Saul is trying to pursue him. Paul wants to kill him. David is scratching his head and, and in lamenting. Why? Why? What have I done wrong? He's done nothing wrong. He's done everything right. And this is the tension there. And until Saul died in chapter 31, and then David took over in uh, 2 Kings, that's that's when it all takes place and David takes over. So, you know, when you make choices to obey God, like David did, you're going to come in opposition from those who do not obey God. I would liken it to a storm 
and you imagine you have a, a huge warm front with lots of moisture in it and it's moving this way and over here is a massive cold front and they're moving together. You know what happens when they hit each other? It's like weather like nobody's business. I mean, rain, thunder, tornadoes, all this kind of stuff. The kingdom of God is in opposition, in conflict with the domain of darkness. It has been for a long time. It is right now, and it will be there. So that's some of the tension there. But David knew he was innocent. So, um, vindicate. The idea of vindicate, at the core meaning of it, is to judge. But it has a little bit more of that. It's to judge me and acknowledge me by my righteousness. We would say exoneration. We looked at this guy. He is not guilty of charge, just like Kimball got. David, I'm not sure he ever got that. We're just not sure. So he says, I'm going to pull this one up, the parallelism of our psalm today is in verse 1, 2, and 3, there's a plea for examine me. Look at my life. If I am wrong, show me and tell me. So verse 1, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. My vindication will be justified by my integrity. Verse 2 and 3 restates the same thing with different words. It says, prove me, O Lord. Try me, test my heart. In my mind. And why? The reason is when you see the word for, F O R, in the scripture, often it introduces an explanation. The reason you can prove me and test me and all that is because your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Integrity. It means wholehearted or sincere. It's where we get our word integer, it's a whole number. And I was corrected by a math teacher last service. It's either a positive whole number or a negative whole number. So I stand corrected. But it is a whole number. It's where the inside of his heart is the same as his outward practice. Where your private life is in sync with your public life. I want to be that way. It's kind of hard to do that. And when I say this, he's a man of integrity, it doesn't mean he's sinless. There's no teaching in the Bible that says we ever reach a point where we have sinless perfection. The way I would like to describe it, it's called the trend of your life. How is the trend of your life? Are you growing? If you, if you have time down here, maturity up here, see if I can do it backwards, but your, your growth is going upwards. You have down times, but your trend of all your ups and downs, you're growing in Christ. I would liken it to the stock market. Let's suppose you want to buy Acme Brick, some shares in Acme Brick. So you go to the paper, and on that particular day, it's doing really good. Sell everything, dear. We're going to buy everything we can from Acme Brick. You didn't realize that was an unusual spike for Acme Brick. Actually, it's been on a downward spiral for about 15 years. You just lost a lot of money because you looked at one day versus the trend over time. And so, David, and you can be a person of integrity for a day. That's easy. How about integrity for a lifetime? That's a challenge. It's a huge challenge. So, what about David? Did he get his vindication? Doesn't really say, but I'm going to say yes because of things like this. This is when Solomon was going to be, he was 
The new king, David, had died. And this is a commentary by God himself on David. And so God is speaking to Solomon. And as for you, Solomon, if you would walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have walked, that I have doing to all I have walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, uh, doing according to all I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and rule. God said he was a man of integrity. 700 years later, book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, starting his ministry to the Gentiles, says this, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. That would be a nice statement. I think David got his vindication. But at this point in time, he doesn't feel it. He doesn't have it. He's a hunted criminal screaming out for vindication, screaming out for justice. So David is saying in no uncertain terms, he's not guilty, but he's still pressing on. So how did he measure his integrity? There's a couple things. First, we're going to see how he separates himself from the influence of the wicked. And then in the next, we're going to see how he identifies himself with the worshiping community. So, verses 4 and 5. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of the evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. If you're familiar with Psalm 1, the one that starts off the whole book, it talks about the role a person of righteousness contrasted with the person of wickedness. That psalm makes it incredibly clear you want to be on the side of the righteous. Look at the verbs in this. Do not sit. I do not sit. I do not consort. I hate. And I will not sit. The resolve and the decisiveness of David is, is stirring. Confidence. Best I can tell. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But look at the things that are wrong in this, we see there's men of falsehood. There's hypocrites. Hypocrites, pretenders. They'll say one thing, but act differently. And I'm sure that's not a problem of the local church or anything like that, but that the hypocrites and the, the evildoers and the wicked. And so I think what we can learn from this is that there's a time to separate from evil evil influences in our life. And there's a time to separate, not just from that, but we need to attach ourselves and identify ourselves with the worshiping community. And so that's what he's talking about. So, uh, I want to use an illustration from the bicycle world. I like to ride bicycles. And so, I'm sure some of you have had problems with your bikes, like your front tire, you you were doing too many jumps and hitting curbs and running over people, stuff like that. Pretty soon the rim gets out of whack and it's kind of wobbling. Ever had that happen? And then when it's wobbling like that, it's hitting the brake pad as it goes around, so it's slowing you down. And so I don't like to be slowed down. I have enough problem getting momentum. I want to do something about my wheel. So I take it into the mechanic. She takes the wheel and she places it in a What? You know nothing of bicycle mechanics? It's a truing stand. A truing stand. Why did they call it a truing stand? It's fascinating to watch. I want to have one of those someday. 
So she puts the wheel in that thing, and she rolls it around, and it's kind of wobbling. She says, yep, you got a problem, buddy. And then there's little calipers here uh, that kind of you can adjust, and these things come closer and closer and closer. She begins to pull those things together as the wheel goes around, and every time it hits those little calipers there, she takes out her spoke wrench. She loosens some spokes on this side. She tightens some spokes on this side, rolls it around, tighten the caliper. Loosen spokes, tighten spokes. Loosen spokes, tighten spokes. Pretty soon that thing is just running just perfectly. Here you go, sir. Yeah, I can do this now. So, what does that have to do with you? (laughs) Is God loosening some spokes in your life to loosen you from some of the influences of the world around us? Maybe it's Facebook. I have a Facebook account. I've never been on it in a year. My kids laugh at me every time I do, so I can't stand the rejection, so I don't do it. But sometimes Facebook is not a good place to be. You can connect with some wrong people there. Maybe there's some things in your finances. You're not above board in your finances. Maybe you didn't pay your taxes. Maybe you're cheating on expense reports or something like that. Or maybe there's something in your marriage. You know that there's an issue there. She knows it. He knows it. You're just not dealing with it now and you're kind of going off on the wrong road, it could be that. It could be relationships, someone within the church. Maybe you don't get along with your parents. I can't imagine any of you not getting along with your parents. But it happens, doesn't it? Things need to be worked. We need to loosen ourselves from those things, and then we need to tighten those spokes by bringing us over to the Word of God, and it it changes us. And we, we align ourselves. So he's not talking about isolating yourself from the people of the world who are wicked because we can't get away. We can't go. We don't have a bus out here and we're going to a monastery and we're going to stay there. We're getting away from all the evil people. You know what? We bring it right with us. It's in our bags. We are evil. But we can separate from influences that are pulling us down and we can attach ourselves to influences that make us more righteous. Yes. Capiche. Come on. I know it's hot. I know it's hot. So, but not only do we need to separate ourselves from the influence of wickedness and evil, we need to identify with the community of worshipers. And then he also has a prayer here, prayer of protection. It's not just one. You can't just separate from evil. I tried to do that as a non-Christian. I was kind of a moral guy, but I never attached myself to Jesus or the church or anything like that floundering around. Good moral people without Christ do not go to heaven, nice as they are. So, verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence, and I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house. I love that. I love the habitation of your house. And the place where your glory dwells, or tabernacles. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. You know, in the, the books of Samuel, first second Samuel, there's not a lot of mention of the tabernacle, the temple, anything like that, like it was in Exodus when we just finished that. But so, but this takes place in the in the tabernacle. Just look at some of the phrases. 
He washes his hands in innocence at the bronze laver, which is that place between the altar and the holy place. And that's where there would be like ceremonial cleansing. He goes around the altar, the place of atoning sacrifice, where blood was shed. That altar was a busy place. People atoning for their sins. He proclaims thanksgiving aloud. The worshiping community is a people of gratitude. The scripture says we thank God in everything. You mean everything? You mean everything. Yes, it is everything. Even some of the bad things that happen. Things don't go your way. You know, I lose a fight with my wife. I hate to lose. But sometimes I did, and I tried to reconcile that. You know, we hate that. We need to be thankful for this stuff. Actually, sometimes hard times are really good times, and they help us to think and be grateful about stuff. He tells of all God's wondrous deeds. Tells of God's wondrous deeds. I bet the middle kids, hey, David, 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 tell us about Goliath one more time. He's probably said it a hundred times. One more time, can you tell us about Goliath? One more time, can you say about this? All the wondrous things. I would liken it to today, changed life stories. Jesus is in the business of changing us. He's growing us up. He's making us more like Jesus through the influence of the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and just the body of Christ here. And I love to hear changed life stories about how God changes you. Then he says, he loves the habitation of God's tabernacle and the place where your glory dwells. Contrast that, I hate the assembly of the evildoers, the wicked people. I love the habitation of your house. Let me contextualize it a little bit. Good stuff happens when we come to church. We shouldn't downplay it too much. When you come here, you have fellowship. You see people that encourage you. You hear the word of God. Hopefully you're hearing it today. We worship in spirit and truth with our worship man. We celebrate the Lord's Supper here. And I love that time because we see people coming up here and you get to see them and you just, uh, although words are rarely spoken, you can see just the joy of just the, and just the gratitude of taking that bread and putting it there and realizing God's son died a horrible death. Just watch The Passion by Mel Gibson and you'll get, catch a picture of that. Good stuff happens. But there's one more step. He prays for protection. He prays that he would be delivered from sinners, people who intentionally miss the mark of God. And not only do they miss it, they love missing it. There's bloodthirsty men back then and as today. And so that's who they are and what they do. They devise and use evil devices. As you read this story in Samuel and Kings, there's always some intrigue. There's always bad guys plotting there's always wicked schemes going on. And secondly, the use of bribery. Again, bribery was used in a lot of places. They bribed people during the day of Jesus. Lastly, the summary. This is like my favorite part of the psalm, I think, because it just it's a compass setting. You know what a compass is? It's a GPS setting that you put in your car there. But as for me, this is who I am. This is me, David, defining myself. I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. 
In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. You know, life is made up of a lot of choices. The choices you make define the outcomes you're going to have. I'm not talking about the color of socks you're going to wear on a daily, daily basis. And I'm talking about life principles, biblical truths that you begin to build a foundation that you build your life on, your marriage on, your family on, the church on, your career on, and you know, you know what I'm talking about. And so the choices are so, so important. I want to challenge you to become an, a person of intentionality that I'm going to make these decisions. And I'm going to walk in a life of integrity. Secondly, resolve to be redeemed of God. Sounds like a funny word to be using maybe in our context. But it was used a lot in the book of Exodus. That where God delivered Israel out of bondage of Egypt. And so there's times we just need deliverance from things. Resolve, <clears throat> resolve to live under God's grace. We need grace to pull this off. My definition of grace that has helped me a lot is God gives you the desire and the ability to do it. So I read in the Bible, I remember distinctly when it happened, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And I was looking at that. Are you kidding me? I'm the most selfish person in the world. He's asking me to be unselfish. You've got to be kidding me. But God gives you grace. All of a sudden you say, you know, I've got to be a person that's unselfish. And then he gives you ability to do that. You start practicing unselfish deeds. And so God's grace, we need it a lot. And then it says, resolve to stand on level ground. I'm not sure what that means, but I think it means stability. Level ground versus going up hills and cliffs and stuff like that. It's a life where you're in sync with God and the Holy Spirit. A person of integrity will walk on level ground. And we receive... Uh, Bless the Lord at the sanctuary, just being here at the church. Can I talk about some applications? Because we want to be doers of the word and not just hearers, right? Capiche? Yes, good. I want to talk about integrity. I want to challenge each of you as I challenge myself to be a man and a woman of integrity. Do you like to have a banker who is a person of integrity? Or not. I guarantee you wouldn't go to a banker if, they, if you knew they didn't have integrity. How about a used car salesman? Would you go to a used car salesman that doesn't have integrity? Would you go to a medical person if they don't have integrity? How about this? Would you want to marry somebody who is not a person of integrity? Oh, no, we don't want to do that. Integrity is so important. But you know, we want it from everybody else. I want you to treat me with integrity in my physical, you know, when I go to the hospital, when I go to the bank, when I do all this kind of stuff with a car, give me the right answer. But how about us? We need to be people of integrity. Integrity takes a long time to build. It takes a moment's sinful indiscretion. It goes down. I'm 68, and I'm trying to make it to the finish line. And I'm praying, God, don't let me fall. Don't let me sin. Shoot me if you have to. Take me out of the game, but don't let me fall off this thing. It's that important. I like this quote from uh, Maxwell that says, We struggle daily with that situations that demand decisions between what we want to do and what we ought to do. 
Integrity establishes the ground rules for resolving these tensions. Integrity wells what we say, think, and do in a whole person so that permission is never granted to one of these to be out of sync. When integrity is the referee, we will be consistent, our beliefs will be mirrored by our conduct. Well, there's more from Proverbs. I love Proverbs. Whoever walks in an integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. You know, when you're not a person of integrity, let's suppose I'm cheating on my income taxes, but you all think I'm a spiritual person because I come to church and all that, but you don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but I'm a cheater of the IRS. And so I've got to manage this indiscretion of my life. It takes a lot of mental emotional energy to make sure whoever I'm with, this doesn't slip out and convict me or something like that. It's like running a computer with all kinds of applications that kind of deadens the old processor there. But when you're, as best you can tell, I'm not saying sinless perfection, but as best you can tell, your life is good in all these different areas. You're trying to manage and do all these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need one another. We need people in our life to help us walk through that stuff. But when you have integrity of heart, when you go to bed at night and your head hits that pillow, you're out just like that. You're at peace. Don't you want that? I want that. So integrity, the inside of his heart, is the same as his outward practice. His private life was in sync with his public life. Proverbs 19.1, Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Integrity is often tested by adversity. Gosh, I have to pay my taxes. I don't have the money. Do it. Or sometimes it's prosperity. You know, hey, I can be relaxed on things, kind of let things go. Then do it. And this last one, Proverbs 20, verse 7, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. One gift that keeps on giving to your kids is pass on the value of integrity. The Nelsons are people of integrity. You got it. You know, I'd lecture to them. We don't cheat. We don't lie. We don't do that kind of stuff because we're the Nelsons. This is who we are. And so if you go to the grocery store and the clerk overpays the change, gives you $10 extra, and you say, wait a minute, you gave me too much. Let me give it back to you. And then your kid's jaw drops open. He does what he says. That, that little sermon will say more than all your little lectures. Don't you want your kids, my mom, my dad, my grandfather, whatever, we, they were people of integrity. I really appreciate that. There was a story told by a preacher, Chuck Swindoll, and the story was like this. There was a couple went to Kentucky Fried Chicken. They went through the, the drive-up window. They ordered their chicken. They got their box of chicken. We're going to the park to enjoy their picnic together. When they got there, they opened up the box. To their surprise, no chicken, but tons of money, cash. What happened? They surmised that maybe the manager put the day's proceedings from the till into a box so that they could take it to the bank. They inadvertently gave them the wrong box. What would they do? Well, they go back. They go back to the manager and say, we think something's wrong. They put the box there. They open it up, see the money. The manager is in, 
just incredibly impressed. He ransomed Razabath. Thank you so much. I thought there wasn't anyone honest in this world anymore. Where are the people of integrity? You are the people of integrity. And it goes on like this. Hey, we should get the newspaper here. This is a story we need to really get in the newspaper. And the more he pushed on that, the more this couple pushed, yeah, no, no, I don't think so. And why not? Why wouldn't you want to do that? And the man said, well, though I'm, this woman is not my wife. Ugh, great story going south. I want to talk about Jesus because we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. The Old Testament in the Psalms looks forward to what Jesus is, what he is doing there. And I was thinking about, was Jesus Christ a man of integrity? Did he want vindication? We know he lived a sinless life. He was falsely accused. He was lied against. He went through six trials, three civil, three religious. Even Pilate, not a notable man for his character, he said, hey, I find no fault in this guy. But they overwhelmed him. And so they put him to the cross. They killed the most innocent person ever to be. Of course, we know he died and rose again on the third day. And when he came back from the dead, his resurrection, all the followers of Jesus, vindication, he is the Messiah. Everything he said is true. My gosh, I want to live for this. For those that didn't know Jesus, the, the schemes and the lies, you know, the resuscitation theory, all this other kind of stuff, they, they reject it. Someday... Jeff talked about it, called the second advent of Christ, Revelation chapter 12, when Jesus comes back on a white horse and he closes everything down. Justice will be made. Everyone who doesn't know Christ will see, oh my word, the biggest mistake in my life forever is rejecting Jesus. What a guy. I would have liked to walk around him to see someone who lived a life of such integrity. It would be astounding. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord. Man, we thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for each person here. Pray that uh, as we scatter today to our various homes and jobs, I pray that we would be people of light. We would be light into the darkness. Pray that you'd help everybody with jobs, decisions. And I would ask that, uh, Lord... You would help us to be men and women of integrity. And Lord, we are vindicated in you because you, you paid the price. The guilt was paid. We have been exonerated of our hideous crimes. So Lord, we just pray that you would uh, receive honor and glory, that we would make much of your name in this city, in this area.